Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, today I'm speaking with Ryan Bennett. Ryan is a software developer and I saw him on one podcast talking about the intellectual dark web, but talking about it more as a protocol or as a means to achieve communication as opposed to a loose group of people. And I think the first time I'd heard about you was right after that big Pangburn event in um, yeah. New York where you and um, a couple of mutual friends, Jay Shapiro and I think Melissa Chen, kind of organized a yep. bunch of um, events for the people who were going. Yep. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun weekend uh, with a lot of awesome cooperation. And I hadn't, I hadn't met any of those folks beforehand. Um, it was just sort of Twitter kismet. Um, and we started, you know, threw up an event bright page and people started reaching out to their networks. Uh, and it was just, it was, it was really rewarding. Yeah. I mean, well, Jay and Melissa, I, I, you know, I like quite a bit, uh, they're good people, but okay. I want to get back to like when you were talking about the protocol, like you'd come up, so you and Andrea had spoken and you were going through it and you'd listed like the four steps of how yeah. to engage a conversation and you were using it. Um, so, I mean, like I have an, I, I, you have, you do software design. I was doing like network engineering and setting up communication systems for the military in war zones. In the last four years, I've been managing an ISP up in Northern Canada. So right. like I'm, I under, I was like understanding that from like a hardware end of things. Right. Right. And so I, I was thinking if you could just list those four steps again, cause yeah, I, I listened to your thing with Andrea and I'm, but I think there might be a initial thing you're missing. Okay. And I just want to go through them again, just to make sure I'm not, you know, like just repeating something you've already said. Sure. Um, well let's, uh, it might help to stay, to take maybe one step back to frame, you know, so where, where the motivation comes from to, uh, to talk, to talk with this metaphor in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I started playing with the idea really the instant that I heard Eric Weinstein utter the term on that live podcast with Sam Harris. Um, cause I heard that and being a software guy, um, and sort of playing in a lot of the peer-to-peer -peer and distributed system space. I was like, I'm aware with the underlying technology of the actual dark web, like the onion router um, that provides anonymity online. Um, so the metaphor really instantly sort of lit up my imagination. Um, and I started thinking about it as from a network perspective almost immediately. Um, and I started to get really frustrated, especially, you know, after Barry Weiss's, uh, piece came out, um, which, you know, no, no bad thoughts on that piece specifically, but the, the general conversation over the last year, year and a half has been sort of, you say intellectual dark web, and then you start either praising or critiquing one or two people that have been associated with that label. And I feel like that that framing misses a lot of the potential of the idea of an alternative sort of emergent sense-making network that contains both, you know, high-profile public intellectuals, but it also includes the, you know, the people in each of our lives that we're able to have sort of uh, beyond the Overton window discussions with, you know, the the, the people that we can trust to 
to try out new ideas with who aren't going to like I, immediately just, try and pigeonhole if, us. If I could just interrupt you for a second, just because I wanted to just get back quickly to one thing, like that web, that uh, podcast um, you'd mentioned, when Eric coined the phrase, you know, so to speak, and then when that article came out, the first thing I thought of was that's that's the worst thing they could have done or the timing was like way off because mm. the you know the minute you gave it a name you gave people something to attack because right. right away it was thought of as a group of people and you know this is their bent and this is what they you know this is their bias right. this is what they're going to push right if you just stayed a loose collection of people who supported each other or what you know whatever you could have gone on those speaking tours you could have done whatever but not just given that a name i think the naming of it the naming was a problem in and of itself yeah i i am sympathetic to that point um i don't have as much of a problem like because at a certain juncture if you're going to talk about a, a phenomenon you sort of have to name it right it, yeah. you can only dance around something so long so even if it's a placeholder um it's, it's sort of a, a necessary thing to do. Uh, my problem came soon after when it became clear that the meme was galvanizing in the public consciousness as that sort of club of a dozen people because I feel like it's, it, it, it's sort of – it's the perfect name for the emergent phenomenon of, of a sort of, sort of cultural zeitgeist, um, and it's not that great a name for – a club of a few dozen people, at least from where I'm standing. Yeah. Anyways, if you want yeah. to continue, sorry about that. Sorry for that. Oh, sure. Tangent. Oh no, that's yeah. fine. Uh, so yeah, I guess. So I, I started thinking about, you know, if you, if you want to, if you have this network, right. The, what's the proper way to analyze a network? Well, you know, you can identify the nodes that are a part of it and either machines in the case of a computer network or the people in the case of a social network. Um, and that gets you a little bit, um, but it's not at the heart of it because when you think of, you know, what is the internet, it's not just a bunch of computers, right? And what's more is that if you start digging into the ideologies and the, the, the arguments of people in the IDW, it's a little like trying to understand the internet by like, taking a sample of hard drive contents of, you know, connected computers. It, it, it's sort of the wrong level of analysis to understand the emergent phenomenon. And to my mind, the right level of analysis to understand that emergent phenomenon is in the protocol that those, that in the case of the internet, those machines use to talk to each other, or in the case of uh, the emergent IDW um, would be sort of the conversation protocol that they're using to have high quality uh, discourse in a media environment that is, is sort of sadly uh, awash with really uh, rather low quality discourse. Um, so that that was sort of my initial framing, and so now now we're sort of up to date. And I can run through the list of one slice of of the protocol that I've, I've tried to articulate, um, for better or worse. Uh, it's probably worth noting that. A single protocol will never do it, right? Even in technology, we have this notion of a protocol stack, right? Which, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, if you've no. got, 
you've got different uh, abstractions that are responsible for different parts of of the communications. You've got uh, physical layer, and I'm sure you're aware of all of this given your background, but yeah. perhaps for your audience, you've got the physical layer, which is really just responsible for how do you turn ones and zeros into radio waves that go over Wi-Fi or into electrical pulses that go over an Ethernet cable. And then at sort of a, a more a higher level of abstraction, you have the IP layer, which is all about addressing different machines. So it's how how can my computer talk to the computer at the data center that uh, hosts my Facebook profile. And then at, all the way at the top, you have stuff like HTTP, which talks about, which is a little bit more semantic and it dictates how you encode a request and a response for a specific page and then like how you parse the resulting data. Um, so this, this IDW handshake that I've nicknamed uh, is really just one attempt to sort of take a microscope and, and zoom into one layer of, of what a, a social or a discursive protocol might look like. And um, in reverse engineering sort of all the podcasts that I've been li listening to um, and, all, and all these conversations that have been being had with the IDW folks, um, I sort of I identified what I think are sort of four key bootstrapping mechanisms or bootstrapping steps that that sort of establish that the that both people are involved in a conversation are involved in good faith and are sort of competent to have the level of conversation that you want to have. Um, so the, those four steps uh, are first to really define and distinguish your core terms. Um, the the best example of this uh, that people are probably familiar with is the truth debacle between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, right? Um, so they famously, you know, spent an hour and a half, two hours of their first interaction uh, getting wrapped around the axle on the, the definition of the word true. Um, and it wasn't really until sort of several conversations later that they were able to sort of, uh, yeah, and with, with Brett Weinstein's help, yeah. uh, make that distinction between uh, literal truth or objective truth and metaphorical truth. Um, and by creating those two labels for what each one of them were talking about, then they could at least know which version, which of them were talking about at any given moment and move on with a productive conversation. Um, and I think I put this first because it really... I, I tend, if I can use another tech metaphor, I tend to think of language as sort of a lossy uh, compression algorithm, like an MP3, yeah. right? You, you're flapping your gums and putting a word over into somebody else's ear, and then it's going to reinflate into to some idea. Um, and it loses fidelity in that, but it's also worse than that because it's, it's also non-deterministic, right? If I say a word... Um, like my favorite example is uh, is racism, right? If I say racism, if I talk to one type of person, they're going to inflate that as uh, personal prejudice based on skin color. And if I say that to another sort of person, they're going to inflate that in their head as privilege uh, plus power. They're going to have a more systemic definition. Yeah. Um, and it's probably worth discussing both of those, but you really need to be clear up front about 
which one you're talking about. And I think, you know, for most of um, our, our history, we, we've sort of existed in small enough groups that like those definitions were relatively stable. So we didn't, you know, if, if you're in your uh, small town um, or your village or, you know, going back uh, even earlier, your, your tribe, right? Um, and you, all the people around you have common experiences, the, the tightness to which your language uh, is self-consistent so which you can basically take for granted that if you use a word, the person that's hearing it is going to reinflate it to more or less the same idea that was in your head. Uh, in the in the current uh, environment that we're seeing with a global conversation have, taking place over social media, um, that's not really something that we can take for granted anymore. Um, you all, yeah, you but, even see but, it but, across yeah, I mean, the I, disciplines in the academy. Yeah. But I think definitions kind of went out the window and – Bill Clinton didn't know what the meaning of the word is, is. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not so much that he didn't know. It's that he was actually uh, the, the the case with that is kind of interesting because he very he sort of weaponized a fine distinction um, for for the case for the purpose of deceit almost. Yeah, um, at least is my reading. So it's. It's he, he knew too well, and he was so careful as to make the distinction that he could weasel his way out of something there. Oh, yeah, I know. But, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous when you get down to that. But, no, I mean, I yeah. agree with you. Like, with the definitions, it's because – and I think maybe this is, like, like what I was trying to get at, and I'll let you finish the list. I think sure. it's sort of wrapped up in what you're talking about with the definitions, but I think – something needs to happen a little bit sooner. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like with the racism thing or, uh, I mean, okay, now we're having something like, cause I, I'm an ex Muslim and I, I, I read a lot of this stuff. Like the, they came up with a definition of Islamophobia in the UK and they're sure. trying to come out with one in Canada. And it's, I mean, it's, it's like redefining words or, I understand words change. I understand language changes and all that, but it takes time and it's like, it just seems like it just, okay, you know what? We're going to redefine this word now. This is how everyone has to use it or we're going to come yeah. up with this word. And it just, well, you know, so that's, yeah, that that's a uh, sort of a, I guess a precondition that might be implied in what I'm going after, but not explicitly stated, yeah. which is that you, it is unacceptable to have the authoritarian stance where you enforce, try to enforce a definition uh, of a word. Um, now, if someone is, is playing so fast and loose that they're incomprehensible, you don't have to waste your time talking to that individual. Um, but you, there, there needs to be some amount of, of charity given, um, and this is why the, the second half of that is, is definitions and distinctions, right? If, if, if I use racism and you have a different definition, then everybody swallow your pride and stick an adjective in front of each usage of that word and just for the rest of the conversation use that adjective because um, you're trying to get over a conversational hurdle of misunderstanding and if you're trying to enforce a definition then you're you, you're effectively erasing or, or or preventing your conversation partner from 
using a tool to explore a content uh, content that might be relevant to the conversation right so my uh, my thing is always you know if i want to be as charitable as possible i'll say okay i'll accept your definition of the word that i that i just tried to use um but in return tell me what word i should use to reference this thing that i'm very clearly trying to talk about right and if they won't do that then that's that's a like an instant roadblock okay is, is that is, does that touch on your uh, okay i mean is, is, okay maybe i'll just like okay because what i was thinking was because you mentioned you know what are the principles these people look at but i think that's number three on your list um but i was my first thing was okay and around the same time as all this uh when sam harris used to talk about the uh narrative narrative and he used using it disparagingly, right? So the narrative around any given narrative, and that's the only way you could talk about that. Mm -hmm. But then with all this thing, like racism is privilege plus power, you know, all that kind of stuff coming out. I said, okay, it's time to have um, a conversation conversation. So you sit down with your group or yourself or whatever and figure out what your first principles are and what you mean by them. And like truly figure it out. Like you can listen to... Jordan Peterson and come back and parrot what he says and you have no understanding of what you're saying right. or Sam Harris or anyone like, you know, it doesn't have, it, it can be, but Oh yeah. If, if well, you're you, not, you can, uh, I, I like to say, you know, you should vary your flavors of Kool-Aid that you're drinking and try and make your own. Um, Cause it seems yeah. like, you know, but I mean, it's not to disparage any, any given thinker, but you know, you yeah, don't no, want to I mean, just become a parent of them. Exactly. I mean, it's, but you, but at the same time, you can just say you're for free speech, but you don't really know what you mean, right? It sure. just doesn't mean flapping your gums. There's a lot more to it. And, um, you know, like the abortion debate, like with what's going on in the States right now, uh, you know, the rights of the individual. So, yeah. I mean, you can argue, you can make a case for rights of the individual that doesn't touch, and I'm not talking about uh, like just in the abortion case, but if you're arguing for the rights of the individual and someone tries to bring in abortion, you can use that as an example of, you know, individual rights, but you can't mire the debate on individual rights into a debate about abortion. Right. So that's what I'm saying. I, I don't think enough people are sitting back and thinking of what their own first principles are. Oh, absolutely. And I, th I think if you can, before you start defining terms amongst each other if you could sit down and say okay you know what these are my core foundational principles this is what i believe in this is you know basically this is the lens i'm going to use to solve any problems and it's at that yeah. point then you like you know so getting back to an it thing uh, you know back in the old novel days when you had ipx as opposed to ip you needed a translator in the middle of them for to get them to work um you know if you don't know where the other person's coming from I mean, the definitions and all that can help, but you still don't know what lens you're using to, um, answer, yeah. and, you know, find a solution. I mean, and it's, uh, so this also... is, can I, can I jump in? I, th yeah. I think I, I agree with you. I think on the, the sort of primacy of the type of conversation that you're describing, um, where, you know, you really dig in deep and say, what are the first principles that we're talking about? I, in, in my 
sort of framing uh, we were talking about the protocol stack earlier yeah. for different levels of abstraction um i would view that as a higher level in the stack right so the definitions and distinctions like that's literally this is how you get ones and zeros over the wire um and then the you know the first principles and starting to get into the substance of a real argument um and I, i'm probably shooting myself in the foot for the other three items in the list now um so uh, i i guess I'll, I'll try and improve this in real time um but that's why i like talking about this stuff um but i i, I think the being able to understand uh, and, and i mean not understanding not in sort of a lovey-dovey moralistic sense but just compre raw comprehension being able to comprehend what is going on inside of the mind of someone that you're, you're talking to um there's a first principle aspect to that in terms of how they approach different debates so i'd say that that's important there but i'd say i, I still think you you need to define things first let me see if i can back up this intuition um so for the freedom of speech thing right um it, it's obvious that no one's actually a free speech absolutist right um because there are uh i mean the the canonical example would be um uh child exploitation and child pornography right like nobody wants that to be out in the world um so obviously every term that we use comes with a larger definition around it so you say free speech well, that's generally a proxy for argumentation about public policy it's really like that that's sort of the domain where that plays right it's not an absolute about any information should go anywhere any of the time um, yeah i mean i i use it i think the first amendment um i wish we had something like that in canada but i think that's the best that's the best compromise you can have to have about as absolute free speech as possible you know right. up until the point where it's an imminent and immediate threat of danger and yeah i mean and child pornography you're putting someone in danger so i mean it, it covers opinion and right. it should cover opinion and it should cover discourse and investigation but it shouldn't you know so if you're doing scientific research or if you're doing you know research in uh like sociology or you know like soft sciences whatever you want to call them like if you're doing anything like that you need that freedom to voice opinions and ask dangerous questions right um that but so if i can maybe attempt a, a mini steel man of the of maybe a, a more restrictionist approach um we're living in a communicative environment that is unprecedented right now right um and you know it, it's it's easy to laugh or to uh maybe just disregard um stuff like the data and society report that talks about like radicalizing to the alt-right because i don't i don't i think that is a bit overblown but maybe the the thing that would be a, a bit more sympathetic um to worry about is something like anti-vaxxers right like if there's a public health concern that's going on for misinformation or or bad opinion it's sort of 
I, I realize the more and more I think about these things is that like a lot of these problems that it boils down to like uh, you know tragedy of the common sort of situations where you're the influence of ideology has a second or third or fourth order effect in the world somewhere that does result in harm and you know we can it's really easy to draw the bright line at the speech act that is inciting violence because it's a it, it's literally it's the step it's the domino right before the act of harm right um but zooming out and looking at the way you know mimetic contagion happens and ideology spread i it seems to me that there is an argument to be made that you could back up that chain of events um, and say, okay, there, we need something akin to a, a mimetic immune system so that we don't, you know, start a civil war or we don't um, get the information for how to bring back small pa- uh, smallpox in the hands of a domestic terrorist or something along those lines. Sorry, I know I know, I kind of went way into no, that's, that's there, fine. So feel I mean, free I, to bring I, me back. No, but, uh, okay... I, I don't mind going down this because this is something um, I mean we can whatever we can come back uh, but yeah like okay so the you know how you're saying we're highly communicative and like you put out a tweet about the algorithms in Google and I because and, it, and yeah. that's just it like I think because we're highly communicative and because there is that much information out there if you start curtailing speech, the, I you know I, I have no respect for anti-vaxxers. I think they're you know they're doing a horrible disservice to the world. Oh, absolutely. But and, and, uh, oh, I go I go along finish? the line. Yeah, sorry. I go along the lines of, um, you know, you have to counter it with better arguments, but also I don't think like I okay I'm I'm pushing fifty, you know. Okay they taught us how to use the library, how to do research. I don't think anyone's learning how to do research off the web properly. And I don't think the algorithms are helping. Um, right. It, if Google was designed like a library, so if you opened up Google and you had a bunch of tabs on there and it was, you know, fiction, history, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. they, gave, they gave it, you know, use the library of Congress, classifications of what is you know historical fiction what's real history what's that and so if people did a google search all those tabs would be filled and if you wanted historical fiction you could you know put up the civil war and go to the fiction section and read novels about the civil war but you know what you're getting and you know if like i'm uh, you know i miss going to and not that they're disappeared or anything but you're going into a library or going to a bookstore and walking through the stacks of books and just finding a book at random and picking it up. Mm-hmm. Google doesn't give you that. You know, YouTube doesn't give you like it's, it's your you're you're beholden to those algorithms. And if you know, if you were doing a deep dive, let's just say looking into uh, anti-vaxxers for two weeks, then on you might just get anti-vax bullshit in your feed. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because. So I've noticed this about Twitter recently, um, is that 
when I first started using Twitter, I've had an account for a while, but it was only probably maybe a, a year or two ago that I, I, I sort of, I used it as a, as a way to get off Facebook. So we can make your own judgments, whether the, the cure is worse than the <laughs> disease there. Um, but it, what I found was that at the outset, it's like before the algorithm gets to know you or gets to think that it knows you, you kind of do have that experience of walking down the shelves um, and picking a random book off. But it's like it's like the security camera at the library sees you pull that book down and skim through it, and then you know some some gremlins show up uh, and swap out the next shelf so that as you continue walking, then it's all copies of, of books like that. Um, so I, I I've been trying to find a way to sort of consciously notice when I'm seeing a lot of the same sort of stuff pop up and it's almost like a, a weekly project where I'm like oh I went on this tear about this subject this week and now I'm getting all of that sort of content so I've got to make a conscious effort to go plant some new seeds to get the algorithm to like knock itself out of this uh this local optimization because it thinks it's figured out the only thing that I care about. Yeah. But I mean, like I said, I think, I mean, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on the, the, the speech issue. I mean, we could, um, it's something I'm like love talking about, but sure. it's the, like, that's the, you know, okay. So you, you're actively making a conscious effort to do that. Not right. everyone does and not everyone knows enough to, Right. Sure. Uh, especially, you know, like my friends, uh, you, know, uh, my, you know, like my, my mom or my aunts and stuff like that, they wouldn't have the wherewithal to do that. Um, right. And, you know, so and I don't know about the like everyone's like, oh, the younger generations are so tech savvy. They're tech savvy in the way that they can pick up a phone and, you know, upload videos and this and that and do whatever they want. But they don't yeah. know how it works. And like, yeah, so I, I, I'm a really big fan of the, the metaphor of literacy, uh, and the terms, uh, digital literacy and digital like fluency, um, for lack of a better term. Uh, and the distinction between those two is, I, I think, really important. Um, cause you could, you could put them both under the umbrella of tech savvy. But it's a lot like um, people say that kids these days are digitally illiterate. Um, I don't think they are. I think they're digitally fluent. Um, to make an analogy between being a fluent speaker of a language versus actually being able to read and write. Um, because speaking and listening um, comes, you know, almost basically second nature to every human being, right? You're, you, if you're immersed in a linguistic uh, upbringing, you will you will figure out language um, and how to speak it and how to listen to it. Uh, the same is not at all true of the, of, of true literacy of being able to read and write. So there's, we, I think we need to recognize that gap um, and recognize that yes, kids are being immersed in this digital realm and they're digitally fluent, right? They can open their TikTok or Instagram or whatever, next week's uh, killer app is and they can use it and they can interact in it uh, and, and use it to communicate with each other um, but they don't 
know enough about the the infrastructure that they find themselves embedded within um, to actually constitute what I would really call digital literacy. Do you think that that distinction yeah. makes sense? No, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, and that's that's you know, that's basically it, and that's why I'm saying that get better, you know, get better better education. I, I don't have kids, so maybe I'm, I, I'm speaking about something I don't know enough about. But they should, you know, spend time saying, okay, when you do a Google search, like, like I said, this English is what's class, happening or, in the background. Yeah, yeah, in, you know, in the background. Yeah, and then, or exactly, or this is how you get your answers. This is how, you know, this is how you should do research on it. And, this, and so uh, they get some of that literacy, right? They know, right? you know, they know what they're getting. They know that you're not always going to get what you want. And I, I, again, I think that's why maybe, you know, the tech companies have to do something. They have to be a little bit better. Um, I mean, I use the analogy that, you know, with all the terms of service and they can kick you off their platform or whatever, they're kind of like landlords. And I'm saying they should be more like librarians because. Yeah. Well, so my, uh, my mother is actually a reference librarian. So I'm all for that. I've, uh, yeah, most respect for that profession. Um, but I mean, like Google, especially, I mean, you know, Twitter and Facebook, whatever, but Google is our store of information and it is yeah. where most people will go now, you know, to get quick information instead of going to a library. And so it right. should be curated like one. Yeah. And it's also it, the, maybe this is a, not quite implied by the library, but we, we associate libraries as, as public goods, right? They're typically run by governmental entities. And, you know, I it's a coin toss which institutions I'm more disappointed and frustrated with, governmental ones or corporate ones. At any given moment, you know, um, you know it's, uh, it, it's sort of house choice. Um, but it seems to me that there needs to be a way of of creating that knowledge store in a way that's serving as a public good um and it's i don't think we can trust companies like google and i'm sure we shouldn't be trusting an institution like the federal government um which and and this sort of train of thought is why I've spent my entire tech career um, sort of obsessing about peer-to-peer -peer systems uh, and uh, distributed and decentralized systems. It's because it seems like everything has to be not purely like democratic, not like a some sort of simple majority vote system, but there needs to be an emergent negotiation that's happening about how we are valuing different pieces of information, how we're vetting them for accuracy um, and for relevance. Um, and I think a lot, there's my, if I had a, a, de, a desire in that space, it would be to see something created that was, that performed the social utility of Google because I mean Google has immense social utility right if you need if you need a piece of information and you know what you're looking for 
to be able to find that in 10 seconds is is just oh it's phenomenal out of out out of this world and and we want to keep that right the problem is is that it's it's been co-opted and controlled by a single entity that has very specific interests that are you know most of the time indifferent to our interests as uh as users and a non-zero portion of the time it it seems reasonable to assume that they are actually counter to the interests of the user and that's where we really get into trouble yeah um but yeah i mean that's just it like i you know it was a good little tangent but you get back to the rest of your list there yeah. sorry oh yeah sure <laughs> oh no worries this has been good um so yeah we started with definitions and distinctions uh i think the second item there was uh to execute a steel man of your uh your partner's position um and this is you know you see this it's almost become a cliche in the sort of idw greater community um that you know steel man is invoked all the time so i don't think we need to to go yeah. into deep dive on that but it, it seems obvious that that's an early step that needs to happen because if you're going to disagree with someone on the, the finer point, you, you really need to be able to articulate uh, what that what their position is that you're disagreeing with. Um, that seems almost self-evident, but sometimes, sometimes uh, I guess it's not. Um, or, or rather, I don't, I don't think it's even so much that it's not self-evident. I think just in the heat of the moment, uh, we forget to to take the slow and steady route to a good conversation it's oh, yeah. really or, or, or you think you have an aha moment and you're like ah oh, there i got you right 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 so I, and that's uh, I, it feels silly going through this list every time i say it out loud um because I, I feel kind of pretentious going through it at all because it all seems sort of like no-brainers like yeah didn't we just learn that this is a, a good a, good things to do in a conversation um but the way I've been thinking of it is just like a a, me, a mental checklist for myself to like be reminded of like oh wait I skipped that you know and, and I I think maybe there's some utility in that. yeah I mean it's something to be obviously it's not you know when you're sitting around with your friends just shooting the shit it's not that important but if you're actually trying to have a meaningful discussion maybe it's something to have always in the back of your mind so you can you know am I you know, am I being unfair to the person I'm discussing with? Right. And especially when you're in a, in a high stakes discussion or in a high tension discussion, right? Those, those are the moments where you sort of, you revert to impulse. So th there might be a utility in, you know, practicing with your friends while you're hanging around shooting the shit of, of going through these things rigorously and formally so that you sort of develop a, uh, a psychological muscle memory um to to so that even when the chips are down and it's a uh tense situation or a high stakes conversation you can still have the presence of mind to be methodical about it um but yeah so define and distinguish your terms steel man your your partner's position and then the third one and this tends to throw people for a loop um but 
I call it uh, agreeing upon the disagreement, um, which is different from agreeing to disagree, right? Because agreeing to disagree is to say, okay, well, I'm not going to convince you. You're not going to convince me. You know, let's go our separate ways and, and try and maintain the peace in the short term, um, which there, there's probably a space for that. But I think if you want to push through it, you need to you, you basically take the intersection of the two steel men that you just created with your conversation partner and you say, okay, are these steel men actually in battle against each other? And if so, where are they hitting each other? You know, what What is the actual slice of our worldview um, that is in conflict here? And if you've done the work, if presumably you understand your own position and you've demonstrated to each other that you understand each other's position uh, you should be able to converge not on what the resolution to the disagreement is but you should at least be able to converge on what the substance of the disagreement is and it's so I see this is just everywhere in the public conversation right now you see people talking past each other on these issues like racism or abortion or second amendment rights you know you, name the political wedge um, and there's the the points that are being used don't address the actual concerns of the of the other side. Um, so I think it's important to take a step back and really say, okay, even if we don't agree at the end, we agree on uh, we agree about what we disagree about. Yeah. Okay. Case in point recently was the you know the concentration camp thing with the uh, Cortez, and right. it's like okay. At, at what point doesn't it matter that, okay, get the kids some clothes, some soap, get them cleaned up, get them fed, get them looked after, then we can have the discussion about concentration camps or not? Right, right. It, 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 you, the, the, some, the rhetorical device, um, to, to call it them concentration camps, is obfuscating the actual problem. Right, because people are now. You can make the argument that the use of the rhetorical device raised the public consciousness about the actual problem, um, and I think there's probably something there. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I don't. I don't. It's the same definition and distinction thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't give a yeah. damn. Just treat these people humanely. Exactly, but that's just. I mean, like, okay, when she said that, when she said concentration camps, right? Yeah. It raised some awareness by some people, but more of the awareness got raised by the people who were freaking out about it. And I'm saying the people were freaking out about it, right? Right. At that point, okay, you know what? That what she called them is such a small thing compared right. to what's happening to those kids. And I mean, I don't particularly agree with the term, but I, I don't even want to like I don't want to have that like. I'm right. dreading there's a, bringing there's the an opportunity cost to having that piss, that particular pissing context, and and then there's an opportunity cost to having what we're doing right now about it. Like, not that either of us can fix anything sure. about this, but you know, we're we're talking about the futility of having that conversation. How futile is this conversation? And sure, and that's where I was thinking, like, if if you knew exactly what her first principles were, if you knew exactly what lens she used, mm -hmm. but you know, to to look at issues then maybe you'll know where she's coming from with concentration camp. And then you could forget yeah. that for the instant and then focus on helping the kids who are there first. Right. 
um yeah and i think that that would the way i would come at that would would be sort of that that's a emergent out of the steel manning process right um, okay is that you 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 try and get inside that person's head and you know even if you don't agree with that position you try and articulate just the, the best possible version of it. um uh it might not be a one-to-one mapping with what you're after, um, but I do think that through these steps, the sort of the first principle awareness does come to light. Um, now, I, I do want to address because you made an interesting point, and I think this is something that comes up uh, a lot when people try and when someone who's very passionate about something comes a, a, across someone who's rather dispassionate and trying to be you know, almost nuanced to a fault about a subject that that accusation of like, okay, well, what's the opportunity cost of you having this banal conversation? Well, things in the world need to change. Um, and my, my general response to that is that, well, it's twofold. One is that realistically speaking, uh, us having this conversation is pretty much the only thing we can do about it. Um, so there's, that, you know, with all the, the information and news that we're consuming, very little of what we hear about or read about or or watch um, that that we think of as news constitutes actionable intelligence for our lives. Um, we can be as outraged about something as we want, um, or as saddened by something that we we want, but um, the the times are rare where there's much more we can do than uh, than you know maybe call our congressperson or, or something that is a, a sort of drop in the bucket of, of a PR campaign um, now alternatively what we can do is have as, as social animals we're going to have conversations with the people that we're connected to in our lives whether they're over social media or face-to-face, right? So I think the project of unilaterally trying to improve the quality of those conversations to the extent that you've got a good idea that maybe you don't have the immediate uh, ability to implement in the world, um, the effectiveness which with which you can both receive criticism to that idea and thereby improve it and also communicate it uh, to um, audiences and uh, not even audiences but just another other individuals um, I think the long-term effects of doing that far outweigh you know any sort of gut thing that you that you could do um, with that amount of time by you know, signing some web petition or um calling your congressperson okay no Um, i okay i I don't disagree with what you're saying there like i but so and i want to focus on this but it was just such a good example of it so she puts out the tweet saying concentration camps so if you're outraged about what's happening if you're just outraged about her calling them concentration camps you know whatever i i it's like you're saying okay i'm going to give up my hands and you're, because you're not looking for a solution about what the real problem is. You're focused on something else. But if you're actually outraged about what's happening to those kids, instead of saying, okay, she shouldn't have called them concentration camps or yes, she should have, this is what they're doing. 
just okay you know what these kids these kids need help right. let's do something to get okay and put out that kind of information or that kind of message right and Start even though it's a and send them some goddamn soap yeah okay and it's 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 you know you're you know the average person doing it yes we're just a drop in the bucket but it's one less screeching lunatic and it's right. one small thing that's getting done and you know if all the outrage if, if 50 percent of the outrage about the comment went to things like that right maybe those kids might have gotten a little bit of help a little bit quicker i don't know you know like I, yeah well no i think it's you sort of everyone's got access to a different set of levers in the world right and some of them are longer levers, so you can move more with them. Some of them are shorter. Um, and they're all spread out across different domains. Um, so I guess my point is more on, on the, the the really abstract conversation that we're having about sort of the, the handshake idea. Um, just that, you know, there, it's, it's easy to I, – I even – I give myself this criticism. There's like a voice in the back of my head that says, Right, you're just navel gazing with all of this stuff, right? It's it's not really uh, important, but I do think that the meta conversations uh, are are worth having, um, insofar as they improve the quality of the other conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, yeah. no, I get, I mean, I get it. Like I, and that's, I'll just give you because. I, I you might hear I'm, I'm I get frustrated. I was overseas until 2014. Okay. I left in 2002, so okay. I was gone for almost 13 years. And social media wasn't a thing when I was gone. Right. Um. And I was working on military bases in active war zones, so your access to social media was curtailed because they didn't want some guy posting a picture and giving something away. Right. Sure. Um. So I got back to the start of this insanity. Like, I mean, it really started bubbling right. up around that time. And since that point, I was thinking like, okay, there's something gone completely wrong here. Like it's, you know, what's happened, you know, in 13 years, like what the hell happened? Right. Um, and for me, it came to a complete head where I said, okay, this is, you know, and I, and I was guilty of everything I was thinking at this point. Um, this went back to Christmas of 2017. And there was someone online. I don't even want to mention their name. I don't want to mention anyone's names or anything like that. Uh, and it's not someone I respect. I, I, I do not like this person. Um, but they had said something along the lines of believe all victims. And then someone said, blah, blah, blah. So-and-so raped me. Believe me. And then there was a little bit of kerfuffle about that. Then that went away. And then someone famous uh, tweeted a screen cap of that. And then the person involved went off Twitter. And people I follow, people who are friends of mine, also don't like this guy. And some of them were gleeful that he took his account off Twitter because of a joke. Now, this person didn't end up taking her account off Twitter, came back after a month or so. But the fact that we thought it was plausible that someone would delete their account because of harm that was going to come to them from something that everyone knew was a lie and a joke. Right. Like I'm saying, if we've gotten to that point where that's, that's in the realm of possibility, yeah. then everything's screwed and we need to wait, change the way we're talking 
and we yeah. certainly need to change the things we're focusing on. Right. All right. Um, there's, and this is why I, I, I've found myself having less and less, this is perhaps a non sequitur, but maybe it'll be good. Um, I've ha- found myself having less and less of a tolerance for sarcasm um, as a means to humor um, because the, the the it, it's it really is only about galvanizing an in-group that type of humor um because the people who get the joke are all or, or who are listening to the joke are already on your side and the people that you would nominally say you're trying to prove wrong are just going to get pissed off about it right it's just it, it's probably the least it it, it is it is the most um, it's the most effective way to further solidify your membership within an in-group and it is the probably the most detrimental uh, speech act uh, sort of everyday speech act in terms of the overall uh, coherence of, of, of civil discourse in general right um, because it just chips away at any sort of goodwill and trust. Um, I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, okay, sarcasm is a low-hanging fruit, but I mean, if you, you follow my Twitter, majority of what I do, and it's only with people I know, like I, I don't yeah. just random people, it's it's snarky comments, so yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I th- th- there's... But, but I, and I think that's, sort of, that's the in-group, version of it right and there's something to be said about friendly banter between people who know that they're on the level with each other um but when you like i mean it's basically it's deploying the straw man um in a mocking fashion in a public debate or or altercation that's sort of what i'm going after Uh, yeah okay if you're having a serious conversation with someone and you're and even if it's someone who's a you consider a friend if you're trying to go through something serious, snark and sarcasm doesn't really have a place in that. I mean, right. it, you know, it is low hanging fruit and it is, I mean, right. You know, but it's like, it's, it's like a, like quote tweeting. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you find some position, somebody saying something you don't disagree with and you quote tweet it with some clever, uh, snarky, you know, dunk that, and to your followers, um, and you probably invite your there, there's a tacit invitation for a pile on if you've got enough of a platform you know the, there, there's these emergent phenomenons that, that cause breakdown um, there that I think are because all of those dunks I mean to my mind basically what you're doing there is you're just trying to you're you're trying to get your next fix of the notification button and i mean okay that's one thing i've noticed too and it's a lot of people who freak out about oh look at your your your, the the mob rules on twitter it's the mob is so bad and they rail about it but then at the same time i've seen them um you know quote tweet someone or take a screenshot and say oh i wonder what the ratio is going to be on this one or they're going to get ratioed really bad and it's like you're doing the exact same thing and you're reveling in it right yeah so there's a there's an interesting thing about the quote and I, I think it's true why as well I'm fairly certain it is um, 
but it's something I, I've called the mm-hmm. pushback paradox. And it's that any time on a social media platform that you engage with content, um, and specifically in this context, it, you, it, say someone says something and you comment on them to contradict them, uh, that action carries with it a de facto share um, it, it, because it it triggers the social media platform to say that you have engaged with it and that it's engageable material. So now there's a higher likelihood that people that follow you will see your response and also the original comment. So there's there's this odd scenario where no matter how vehemently you are opposing something in the context of your tweet or your reply or your um, comment, uh, you are in fact resharing the original thing to which you had issue to. Um, so the you know, and and I see this all the time. It's like someone will someone who I follow who's got like twenty thousand followers will quote tweet some inane statement. Um, commenting like how can people be this wrong right and then i click through and i look at this person and it's like spongebob squarepants with 17 followers um so it's like okay yes what they said was stupid and inane um but you have just amplified it to 10,000 20,000 yeah um okay just a little aside on this i can't remember where i heard i think it might have been carl sagan's daughter um it was like an interview about him, I think. And she was talking about how, so let's say someone puts out an anti-vaxxer video and then you're right. going to de- you're going to debunk that or you're going to go through it. You actually, it, it was something weird. Like the video oh, yeah. debunking yeah. actually sp- spreads the message more than the initial message right. itself. Yeah, this is, um, I can't, I can't remember the details of the study, but I'm familiar with it. Um, because it, comes up fairly recently I think it's a, a pretty well replicated finding which is that the the yeah the argument against something actually even if you just say like uh, you know vaccines do not cause autism right mm-hmm. um, now that's a poor example because that's so that debate is so prevalent but if it were sort of a nothing fact and you just mm-hmm. heard it but you heard it stated in the negative you will remember it in the positive. Um, is that? Is it that was. It, it it wasn't even that. It was more. I think it was something along those lines. But this was. It was an old video. It was. Um, you know, I I only saw it recently, but I mean, it, you could tell just by the quality, of the you know, like the film quality and all that. Like it was. A, a late nineties, maybe that uh, this thing had okay. come out, or maybe sorry, maybe it was a little bit, you know, maybe the early two thousand. So yeah, it wasn't like that recent um, right and so yeah i mean i like i said it was it was along those lines though that that you know hearing someone d- disprove something you're actually hearing the thing and a lot of people will end up believing the thing they're trying to disprove yeah so i i have a a suspicion about why that is um and you, I, I think you'll be well poised to hear it since you also have the tech background i think the not operator is just quite simply an extra cognitive step and so it's the first thing to get dropped um in your memory right 
like you 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 yeah so i i I try and i'm very rarely successful um but it's interesting to think about if you have that realization right that to negate something requires all of the mental energy that it took to affirm the thing plus one more step and so that and recognize that six months down the line anyone that hears it you know there's some percentage of them that are just going to like drop that extra cognitive step because you know we're human and we have faulty memory um that might say something about an approach in general uh when you're trying to espouse something is to always try and formulate the the positive statement um because you know you, you can get creative enough with language uh that for for most cases i think that you know there, there's a way to to phrase something in the affirmative that, that conveys the exact same meaning as the the negative statement that you're going against um and you might sort of uh, by doing so, my hope is that you would be generating memes that are sort of more survivable and more robust in the wild. Be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, okay. Look, the if you could, okay, getting back to the vaccines thing. I mean, there in some cases, there's just no way to do it. You know, like vaccines don't cause autism. I mean, they, they, I don't know how you could say that in the positive. Like, I mean, yeah. They, they, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can do it, I I see where you're coming from. Like, if you can phrase what you're saying, um, like, uh, uh, you know, if you could phrase what you're saying in a way that, uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of an example of uh, to give you, like, you know, um. Well, so uh, you might not be able to do a pure 180 on the exact substance. Yeah. But imagine making some sort of positive statements like vaccines are safe. Right? Yeah, vaccines are safe or so, vaccines, so you, co- you know, vaccines yeah. cure disease or vaccines have been proven and whatever. you. Right, right, right. So, if, so you don't necessarily have to do a, a, a 180 on the precise statement. But if you can come up with a positively phrased statement, that is perhaps mutually exclusive with the one that you are trying to uh, negate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, so now you've got two memes that can't really coexist in the same brain uh, without invoking a lot of cognitive dissonance. That might be, if you can make your affirmative statement strong enough uh, that it's the one that gets resol- that gets kept after that cognitive dissonance is resolved, um, that, I, my intuition is that that's going to be a lot more effective than simply negating the original state. Yeah, I guess. I mean, again, it's, it, I mean, it may or may not be. Well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to I'm like, I'm just trying to think this like, I mean, I, I could see that working, but again, it comes down to, are you going to be able to get those ideas out and, you know, I'll go back to the first thing kind of we were talking about like the free speech like you're putting out those arguments and you have to be able to put them out you have to be able to freely give them but yeah you have to be able to give them to people who 
even if they disagree with you, at least you're willing to listen, right? Right. Like you need, that's why I'm saying like, I, I still don't think if you can get that common framework built up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I think a lot in terms of uh, filtering because um, there's a lot of people on the internet, right? And there's a lot of information, right? And I tend to think of it as a very noisy communicative environment. So if it's, it's probably worth our time to, to save time by not engaging with people for whom the, the overhead cost is so high, right? They're not willing to, to listen to your point, right? They're not willing to extend the same principle of charity to your argument that you're willing to extend to theirs. Um, and given the, the finite time we all have to engage with one another, um, I, I think we might be better off in a lot of situations like, you know, with SpongeBob SquarePants saying something like trolling us, um, we're, we're better off if we can have a, a sort of personal litmus test that says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a shot to engage with me on reasonable terms. And if you don't take it, I'm not wasting any more time. Yeah. I mean, I've, okay. It's just because I, I couldn't be bothered. Um, for the most part, I, like I'll do, I won't reply. I I just don't bother. And okay, I, I it's not like I have you know thousands upon thousands of followers or anything like that. But and I don't care if the person's got more followers than me or not or whatever. Right? I don't care who it is. If I believe that their reply or their comment to me is completely in bad faith, I mean, I just I don't even I'm not even going to bother. And I oh yeah, but I think I think, I think you, you might be more unique than you realize oh i was about to say i think more people should do that because it's do you really care what spongebob squarepants thinks about you yeah for some reason people do (laughs) i mean it it, i maybe we're just wired we're we're missing some uh, software module in our in our psychological makeup or maybe Uh, i mean because it is key it is a network it is people but it is also based on algorithms. You know, we have oh, yeah. I mean, a little bit more of an understanding. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we're we're swimming upstream, all of us, in in these environments because they are designed to optimize for keeping us glued to the screen, right? Whichever way they can find to do that. Now, I mean, it, it's of note that one there's a variety of ways to do that and rage is a really effective one but cute cats are also really effective right um and there are there are other emotions that are also being uh manipulated to maximize our engagement so similar to that that sort of process of the, the analogy to to walking through the library and picking up a book and then all of a sudden the books on the next shelf are like that book um it wouldn't surprise me at all if the consequence of the engagement optimization is that like if if you were in a really bad place for the first month that you signed up on twitter and you're just in a really shitty mood 
Um, and that was the algorithm's first taste of you. And so it, it maximized your, your engagement by way of outrage in that first month. You might just get stuck there for the rest of your Twitter experience. Or if you were in, like, you know, if you had just had uh, a kid or you just bought a puppy or something, you know, really lighthearted uh, and, and love emotion based, right? And they, and that's what the algorithm picked up on you. And you just sort of stayed in puppy Twitter. Um, I, I'd, I'd be interested to see any data on that. I mean, this is pure speculation. Okay, um, wasn't it Microsoft, but, their AI, within like 24 hours, turned into like a raving... Um, oh, yeah. The, <laughs> the Nazi. Well, okay, yeah. so that, that, that's a little bit of an edge case uh, yeah. because it was like news of that <laughs> immediately like made its way to 4chan. And they were just like, "Oh yeah, we're turning this robot into a Nazi." Because uh, oh, okay. that'll be hilarious, right? Uh, I, like, did, I, was, didn't, I, I didn't know the yeah, end of it. Yeah, so that was, uh, if I'm recalling correct, correctly, I could be mistaken, but my understanding is that that was a incredibly targeted effort to uh, to troll that that particular AI. Okay, okay, just sticking with this because this this is, and I'm gonna give this caveat. This is pure woo. I don't believe this. And it's just, but I, I just, like, it was just some, and I even put it out, like I'm saying, this is purely conspiratorial. I don't take this seriously. I was like, okay, the social media companies created the social media, create social media so that the algorithms could figure us out and they could use that data to create their AIs. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I like it. I think it'd make a great dystopian uh, sci-fi. Uh, and you know whether whether or not there was a conscious you know roadmap to that plan at the outset, um, I find it completely conceivable that that's what's going to happen opportun yeah, excuse me opportunistically, right? You know now that they've mm -hmm. got all the data, they're like, oh yeah, let's, let's shove this into our training model. Uh, and I mean, you, that, that's sort of what happens with, um, you know, chatbots, right? They're still very narrow, but I, I would be very surprised if there wasn't a bit of all of our real human conversations that's going into the, the training sets for, you know, the chatbot that's going to help you book a airplane ticket or whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, no, I was sorry. I just, I, I mean kind of derailed a little bit i don't think you even ever got to your last point there in your oh, list uh, yeah sure um so you defined and distinguished terms you've steel manned each other's positions you've agreed upon what the disagreement is so you know you you both are on the same page about what what actual conflict there is between your worldviews i think the the last thing to do is to set the goalposts um, and proactively uh, volunteer the conditions under which you would change your mind. Um, and I think that that's, that's really a precondition for getting into any sort of argument or debate. Yeah, okay, um, I mean, like, because... that, that, that would be, like, you know, the, the sink and the acknowledge and, like, the, the handshake and all that, and, like, you, you know, the four steps you go through. And um, Yeah. But, I mean... And I, I, it, it's important to recognize, right, that this, this isn't, like, um, you know, here we are for the presidential debates and for the first 
opening statements we're going to go through this handshake thing you know it's not this is this is and this is where the metaphor to tech really just sort of breaks down because human to human conversations are so much more fluid um so i think it's it's more of i i tend to invoke these in real time uh in conversations that i'm having with people more as just things to keep in my own mind of like okay i'm gonna keep in mind when each of these steps is threatening to break down or when i notice that they haven't occurred yet and we're like we're in the weeds yelling at each other about xyz but we haven't even agreed about what the disagreement is so well, let's back up a little bit so it's sort of a yeah uh, i mean I, I i understand what you're saying like you you have it as a checklist in the back of your mind it's not like you're going to come up to the first you know when you're having a conversation with everyone, okay we'll define racism define that but it's just right if in the course of your conversation um, like I've started doing something similar. Let's say, uh, okay, there's a really quick thing. There's a law in Quebec that just passed where no public employee can wear religious symbols. Right okay. now, both the pro and the con to this to this bill were making it about the hijab. I'm like, okay, you're both wrong. Even mm-hmm. though I agree with the con side, you guys are making the wrong argument, and I can't right. back a wrong argument. And I'm so when I started talking about it, I I laid out what I think this thing was affecting and then I explained how I did it. And that's how I'm trying to make my arguments now. So if I'm like I'm against this law and I okay, I said, Okay, it's affecting your personal freedoms, affecting religious freedoms. I also said it was affecting, you know, innocence until proven guilty. Right. And so and then I gave my arguments for why I'm doing that. And I think Instead of going up and, okay, how do you define this? How do you define that? Like you're saying, it's that it's way too cumbersome to do. But if you keep that in the back of your head, as you're making your arguments or your points, you can kind of do it like you're writing an essay where you lay out what you're going to talk right. about and then give the meat of, you know, your argument there. Yeah, and you can, I mean, you can sort of, if you're aware of them, then you can be on the lookout for when there's a breakdown, right? Yeah. You, if you're aware, like, when someone uses a term or you use a term and someone responds to it in a very specific way, you get a little light bulb can go off and you can be like, ah, wait a minute. You know, maybe when I said that it didn't inflate into the same thing in their brain. So maybe we should circle back and try and clear up that ground. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like I said, I liked your idea with, uh, when I heard you talking about it with, uh, with Andrea and I just thought that, an initial step in my mind i was thinking about it like okay i get a new piece of kit i've never used it i don't know what it is and i'm going to get this to make my network work i need to learn it so that's why i was trying to think okay if you don't know where you're coming from even so even if you're defining terms by you know um you're quoting milton to define free speech or you're quoting crenshaw because you want to use intersectionality or right. you know you're quoting Sam Harris or Peterson or whoever, and you're just quoting what they say, but you don't you haven't truly inspected it for yourself to know what you yourself actually think. Right. I don't think you're ever going to be able to have like a truly meaningful conversation, and I don't think you're ever going to maybe truly convince people of your own opinion. Yeah. Well, it, it's hard to convince people of a secondhand opinion because it tends to fall apart the second it 
comes yeah. under any real pressure. Um, no, yeah, totally. But that's what I'm saying. I think the first thing that should be done is you look at yourself. Oh yeah. And then, I mean, if you, if you haven't done that little bit, well, you got it. You got to boot up the machine before you can initialize a network. Connection, exactly. Right? And that's where I was kind of like, that's where I was going with it. Like it's, it's like, I've got a new, you know, I've got a new yeah, router. There's sort um, of a, st- it's almost like, it's not even step one. It's sort of step zero. Yeah. It's, right? it's, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 you're, it's the prerequisites you need to have before you can even get to that stage to have that protocol come into effect. Yeah. I'd buy that. And like, I mean, like, like I said, that was kind of my little, it wasn't even really a bone of contention. Um, right. You know, I was just like, it was like, okay, there might be something missing here. And then no, again, like, like it was like, it was like the little algorithm thing, which was just a tweet you'd put out. And I was, you know, I was like, I was, I've been kind of thinking of this to myself, like these, these tech companies have to do better and this algorithm has to work better. It shouldn't just give you what you think you want because yeah. Absolutely. You might not know, you know, especially if they're, if you're younger, you know, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, again, you know, the education system, I think they need to spend time teaching kids how to use, like, how to do research in this method. I mean, they still might be just saying, go to the library, go on the computer and, you know, like, I, I don't think they have card catalogs anymore. It's all you know, computerized. So go on the, you know, go on the computer in the library and find the book you need. I, I, I don't know if they're giving them the skill set to learn how to, like I think that's again that's why my my most basic thing is always the free speech and about as right. absolute as possible it's you need to get the information but you need to be able to get to people to learn how to listen to that information or, or ingest it yeah. because that's where the free speech argument well this is all, all about yeah and I think there's um it's sort of a, a rights and responsibilities sort of thing where it's like yes you have free speech and with that comes a bit of a responsibility to to use to articulate things well and to endeavor to to use it positively i mean Uh, yeah and and that's with everything i mean you have to but again that comes back to teaching you know it's not all school it's there's family and i I realize yeah there's so many issues in there but something i might uh throw at you is um similar to that sort of overabundance of people and, and sort of not learning how to filter out people who are coming at you in bad faith, like learning how to ignore the trolls. I, I think in that education and media literacy uh, point, there's, there's a deep need for the ability to uh, filter out both bad information, right? And this is just like, you know, if I could advocate uh, a mandatory maybe high school class, it would be just, you know, a, a decent classical reasoning and critical thinking course where you just, you know, learn the patterns of bad arguments and learn about logical inconsistencies um, and learn about how to construct good arguments and, and sort of uh, just training against uh against propaganda and training against uh you know public panics um, and learning how to sort of see more clearly not just who you're getting the information from but the information itself like you should be able to 
to attenuate some of the noise that we're all uh, exposed to. Because I don't think the noise, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't, maybe that's the best way to put it. There's, I don't think there's a moral way um, to mandate that there be less static, um, but there is a moral way to train, uh, train us all to be better at attenuating that static. Yeah, I mean, it's we have to. I mean, you know, we we picked up filters for everything else, and I, I just don't. I think at the pace with which the internet grew, we haven't had time to pick up those filters. I think they're slowly starting to come in, and people are slowly, very slowly, starting to figure it out. But you need to get those things in. Um, I know you've got a heart out here, so. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I'll give you the last word. If you want to give people any information, if you got anything coming up, or if you want to just give out your social media or anything. Uh, sure. Um, I am at uh, Rye, R-Y underscore Nomad. Um, if anyone wants to jump on Twitter, uh, that's pretty much my, my only personal public presence, uh, such as it is. Um, I do want to uh, point out something uh, um, or give a plug to a thing that I've recently come across in my Twitter Twitter feed um, called uh, the II, uh, the inter-intellectual sort of sphere. Um, there, it, there's a series of essays uh, that have gone up recently that are describing this sort of emergent zeitgeist of um, sort of an intellectual niche in the in the public sphere. Um, and as I've been reading them and sort of following the scout and, and some people having conversations around it, it really strikes me as the thing that I thought the IDW was when I first heard it, right? Before that meme sort of got deeper into the public consciousness and sort of solidified into this, you know, club of public intellectuals. Um, and I had this sort of notion that it was really this emergent phenomenon of, of people throughout the world sort of trying to find each other and raising the bar on conversations uh, and not just being subject to one size fits all narratives. Um, these, these essays on the II have really, uh, spoken to that that same philosophy um and sort of i'm i'm i, I mentioned this with andrea I, I sort of recognize that i've um too late to the game and perhaps just sort of uh lost the definitional battle uh for the idw you know i think it it is what it is in the public consciousness now so i should probably take my own advice and uh and swallow my pride and and back away from from what I'm conceptualizing, but the II really is, I think, what I, what I was going for when I started thinking about this large-scale network thing. So if anyone's interested in that, uh, I would highly suggest you, you, that you uh, check them out. Uh, they're at what's the II, uh, all one word, um, on Twitter. Uh, right. And you, I think they've got some pinned tweets about the sort of foundational essays. Really good yeah. stuff. Cool. I'll check that out. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for your time. And yeah, thank you so for, much. Thanks, everyone, for listening.